Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we will look at the most recent wave of scandal and manipulation of the nation's highest court, as well as historical controversies that go back much, much farther than that. However, in a bygone age, scandal is handled much differently than today, putting our current state of dysfunction and hyperpartisanship into sharp focus. Sources today include the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Legal Eagle, The Majority Report, the Kyle Kalinske Show, the Muckrake Political Podcast, the PBS NewsHour, and Robert Reich, with additional members-only clips from All In with Chris Hayes and Now and Then. The corruption of Clarence Thomas has been documented by ProPublico, the New York Times, and article after article. He's gone on these junkets by billionaires. He's accepted huge gifts that he has not disclosed. It's because until very recently, there were no ethic codes applying to Supreme Court justices the way they apply to lower federal court judges. And now they have a weak new code of ethics, but they leave its enforcement up to each Supreme Court justice, which, you know, makes a mockery of satire. And so what we're seeing here are mealy-mouthed Democrats investigating in the Senate Clarence Thomas and to some extent, Justice Alito's freebies and junket, and not calling for the resignation. The columnist for the Washington Post, a Harvard Law grad, Ruth Marcus, just had a column demanding that Clarence Thomas recuse himself in the upcoming decision about Trump's assertion that he's immune from prosecution because what he did occurred when he was exercising his duties as president in the White House. And she should be asking for his resignation. And the Senate Judiciary Committee under Senator Durbin and Senator Whitehouse, they've got loads of evidence on Clarence Thomas, and they still haven't called for his resignation. Now, by comparison, under the period of Lyndon Johnson as president, Abe Fortas was a, a Supreme Court justice, was accused of taking a grant from a politically connected person who had a foundation in Florida. And after a few denunciations in the press, Abe Fortas tendered his resignation. Clarence Thomas has done far, far worse, and blatantly so. And he's arrogant about it, and he's defending it, and he's not remorseful. And the Democrats aren't even asking for his resignation. This illity decline in public ethics and morality, a decline is too easy a word. It's fallen off a cliff. And Clarence Thomas is really the Donald Trump of the Supreme Court. Ralph, I just want to follow up as long as we're talking about the Supreme Court. How do you feel about the Supreme Court as a branch of government? Because when I look at what I know of the Supreme Court and the decisions they've made throughout history, aside from a few years in the 50s and 60s of the Warren Court, it seems like they've made mostly bad decisions on the big issues. You're talking about Dred Scott or corporate personhood or the Second Amendment or Bush v. Gore, Citizens United, the repeal of Roe v. Wade, you know, Buckley, Vallejo. They seem not to make good decisions throughout history. Is it worth it for them? Is it worth it for us? Well, they were the bastions of the property classes, as they used to say in the old days, and they made no bones about it. You know, they presided over a period of slavery. They presided over a period where women didn't have the right to vote. 
They presided over the Jim Crow period after the Civil War, and they didn't disturb the entrenched status quo of a corporatist white male domination. And of course, until recently, they were all white males. And as you say, starting with the Earl Warren Court, they produced Brown versus Board saying that school segregation was illegal, and they fostered the civil rights movement in case after case. And then the Burger Court took over, Warren Burger, and turned it to the right. And then it hasn't stopped. It is now the most extreme court in generations with the 6-3 majority that is pro-corporate, pro-executive branch power at the expense of the Congress, anti-union, anti-worker, and anti-consumer. And the only time they defer to Congress and defeat the petition for the people is when they feel it necessary to rein in the regulatory agencies. But worse is yet to come. They may come out with a decision next year stripping the regulatory agencies of the delegation of authority to regulate corporations like the oil companies, the drug companies, the auto companies. They may issue a decision that strips them, saying that this is an unconstitutional delegation of authority by the Congress that is legislative in function and has no business being exercised by executive branch agencies, throwing it back to Congress saying, you want to regulate these corporations, you do it, with thousands of pages of regulations, presumably, as if Congress has the expertise or is willing to labor more than three days a week when they're not in recess. So I think they are reaching a point, the sixth justice majority, of getting a huge backlash and calls for impeaching them altogether before the Senate. I've written an article several years ago saying, I don't call for impeachment of justices very easily. But when in case after case, these justices come down on the side of artificial entities called corporations, which are never mentioned in the Constitution, against real human beings, whether they're workers or victims of different oppressions or looted consumers, that when they continually vote in favor of artificial persons, are never mentioned or authorized in the Constitution, that that is a severe ground for collective impeachment proceedings before the U.S. Senate. I think that's what we're going to be looking forward to if the progressive liberal interests in this country have any sense of being able to look at themselves in the mirror and not be seen as surrendering the sovereignty that the Constitution gave them as real human beings, surrendering to the supremacy of giant corporations. Just a week after the initial report on April 13th, ProPublica published details of an October 2014 real estate transaction between Crow and the Thomas family. According to public documents, one of Crow's companies paid just over $133,000 for two vacant lots and a single family home that were co-owned by Thomas, his mother, and the family of Thomas's late brother. The transaction, which had not previously been disclosed, was the first known instance of money flowing directly from the Republican mega donor to a Supreme Court justice. Now, under the terms of the sale, 
Crow allowed Justice Thomas's then 85-year-old mother, Leola Williams, to live in her home for the rest of her life. She lives there currently rent-free, but is responsible for property taxes and insurance. And after the sale was completed, contractors then undertook extensive renovations of the house. Then on top of those transactions, according to an April 16th article by the Washington Post, Thomas has reported hundreds of thousands of dollars of income from a firm called Ginger Limited Partnership for two decades. The problem here is that the real estate firm founded by his wife and relatives has not existed since 2006. The company's assets were taken over by a similarly named Ginger Holdings LLC, but Thomas's disclosure forms make no mention of a newer firm. Now, given the similarity of the names, it's possible that the company was just listed in error, but it merits mention given Thomas's decades-long history of non-disclosure. In a statement provided to ProPublica, Crow describes the Thomases as, quote, very dear friends and defended the trips as the kind of hospitality he extends to all their close friends. Quote, we have been most fortunate to have a great life of many friends and financial success, and we've always placed a priority on spending time with our family and friends. With respect to the property purchase, Crow said he purchased the home with a plan to turn it into a public museum honoring Clarence Thomas. While he he claimed the transaction was at market rate, Crow purchased a vacant lot and a house on the same block for $40,000 the prior year. Crow did not explain why he bought the two vacant lots, but indicated that they had been sold. Crow also asserted that he has never attempted to influence Justice Thomas on any legal or political issue, and claims he is unaware of any friends attempting to influence Thomas on the same. But at the same time, Crow serves on the board of multiple groups that have advocated at the Supreme Court through the filing of amicus briefs. And in 2005, a company called Trammell Crow Residential that was formed by Harlan Crow's father and partly owned by Harlan Crow was a defendant in a case before the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas did not recuse himself from that case. In response to ProPublica's reporting, Clarence Thomas defended the trips and pleaded ignorance that it was wrong. And in a rare statement stated, quote, Harlan and Kathy Crow are among our dearest friends, and we have been friends for over 25 years. As friends do, we've joined them on a number of family trips during the more than quarter century. We have known them. Early in my tenure at the court, I sought guidance from my colleagues and others in the judiciary and was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reported. Portable. I've endeavored to follow that counsel throughout my tenure and have always sought to comply with the disclosure guidelines. These guidelines are now being changed as the committee of the judicial conference responsible for financial disclosures for the entire federal judiciary just this past month announced new guidance. And it is, of course, my intent to follow this guidance in the future. Now, this statement raises far more questions than it answers. For example, while Thomas acknowledges being gifted family trips from Crow and perhaps others, he does not address the use of Crow's plane for other reasons. And as we'll talk about later, travel and and the actual vacation itself are treated differently. For example, in 2016, Thomas used Crow's plane for a direct three-hour trip to and from New Haven, Connecticut, which would have cost about $70,000. And it appears that Thomas might have been the only one on that plane. And obviously no one would ever vacation in New Haven, Connecticut, so the trip must have been for some other reason. Additionally, Thomas asserts that he sought guidance within the judiciary and was advised that his hospitality from close personal friends was not reportable. But Thomas doesn't specify who advised him, whether they had any expertise whatsoever, whether they were self-interested in that advice, uh, whether this occurred before or after befriending Crow, or whether he followed up after this initial advice within the 30 years that this has been going on. And while Thomas claimed that he has always sought to comply with disclosure guidelines, the justice has a documented history of forgetting to disclose certain things. In 2011, Thomas amended prior forms to reflect income his wife earned between 1998 and 2003 from the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank, which Thomas claimed was inadvertent omitted. A 2004 LA Times report revealed that Thomas had accepted private plane trips and expensive gifts, including a Bible that was previously owned by Frederick Douglass, valued at $19,000, and a bust of Abraham Lincoln, valued 
$15,000. The article also noted that Crow had donated $175,000 for a new Clarence Thomas wing at the Justice's Childhood Library in Georgia. Uh, and after the Times report, Thomas continued to take plane trips from Crow. He just stopped disclosing them. And uh, ProPublica is not the first publication to raise questions about the relationship between Crow and the Thomas family. In 2011, the New York Times detailed numerous favors that the Texas billionaire had done for the Thomases, including helping to finance a library dedicated to the Justice in Savannah, Georgia, and providing $500,000 for Ginny Thomas to start a Tea Party conservative activism group, which came with a $120,000 a year salary for Ginny Thomas. And in a move that stirred controversy at the time, Crow financed a multi-million dollar restoration of a cannery that included a museum about the culture and history of Pinpoint, Georgia, a pet project of the Associate Justice. Now, Crow says he hasn't tried to influence Thomas on any issue, and it's true that people who are ideologically aligned are probably more likely to become friends. But if a billionaire gave my partner $500,000 to start a political organization, flew us around the world on a private jet, bought property from me that would both house my mother for the rest of her life, and promised to have that house turned into a museum honoring me, well, you might question the independence of this channel. Harlan, call me. Now, Thomas's former law clerk, James Ho, who currently sits on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, defended his former boss by suggesting that the hypocritical double standards were at play, saying that, quote, there's a big difference between actual corruption and the appearance of corruption. Uh, but even if there isn't any quid pro quo uh, between Crow and Thomas, the entire crux of judicial ethics is based on avoiding any appearance of impropriety. But under 28 U.S. Code Section 455, any federal judge, including these Supreme Court justices, are supposed to recuse themselves from any proceeding, quote, in which which his or her impartiality might reasonably be questioned. Unfortunately, there are neither official rules nor a legal mechanism to force the justices to recuse themselves, and Chief Justice Roberts has long resisted calls to impose a code of ethics on the Supreme Court. And not surprisingly, there is a wide-ranging debate on this topic. Multiple legal experts told ProPublica that these non-disclosures were not just unethical, but may have broken the law, specifically the Ethics and Government Act of 1978. And in a bit of cheekiness from Congress, the Congressional Research Service put out a helpful explanation of this law following, quote, a recent article detailing undisclosed trips by an associate justice, whoever that could be. Yesterday, uh, since we were talking about uh, the Supreme Court, yesterday we played a clip of uh, Sheldon Whitehouse um, talking about the conflict of interest that Clarence Thomas clearly had with his family member uh, working for entities that had cases in front of the Supreme Court. That being his wife and that being January 6th. White House goes on in that same um, hearing to lay out all of the ethical violations that uh, Clarence Thomas has uh, has appeared to have committed. Now, of course, the Supreme Court says, well, we don't have to respond. But people remember, like, this came up in 2011 to, as well. The exact same thing. Clarence Thomas's relationship with Harlan Crow. Two judges actually came to testify in regard to it, Scalia and Ginsburg. That was back when the Supreme Court actually cared about its legitimacy. The important thing to understand here is that there's no mechanism. And White House has a piece of legislation that would impose at least a system 
to adjudicate whether there have been ethics violations. I don't know that it would take any, uh, would have any enforcement power, but at least it would place out there for our representatives a nonpartisan method of establishing that there has been an ethical violation and uh they they then could have the opportunity to impeach the justice or whatnot so you're gonna you're starting this at 315 right okay here it is which brings us to justice thomas's recent non-disclosure of supposed personal hospitality from a right-wing billionaire and its problems first problem private jet travel is not in the personal hospitality exemption which is limited to food lodging and entertainment exhibit seven some textualist, by the way. Second problem. Thomas said it was okay because he'd asked colleagues. But that financial disclosure committee, it's there to ask about financial disclosure. Setting aside that his name should give a clue, Thomas knew the committee existed because concerns about his yacht and jet travel gifts from this billionaire were referred there in 2011 after some of these gifts were first revealed in this New York Times story, Exhibit 9. Third problem, there's no legal way not to disclose the property acquisition in Georgia. Fourth problem, some of this personal hospitality involved people dedicated to turning the court into a tool for right-wing billionaires, namely Leonard Leo. This guy doesn't have business before the court, his business is the court. This disclosure mess has again been referred to the Financial Disclosure Committee, which raises the question of the previous referral to that same committee of the same billionaire's gifts to Thomas of yacht and jet travel. The rules seem to require the committee to report its findings to the Judicial Conference. The records of the Judicial Conference are public, and the records of the Judicial Conference contain no mention of any such report. So what became of the 2011 referral? Did anyone intervene? Is the committee still considering the 2011 referral more than a decade later? There is much yet to learn, which is why last week I sent a letter to the courts asking for further answers. Exhibit 10. Three things are needed to fix all this. Better enforcement, better recusal rules, and better disclosures. My bill would do all three. I mean, it, it, it is extraordinary. He's saying he didn't know. He asked people. He had been called to court, as it were, on these big, like, not even similar things. Same guy. The same guy. It was just less numbers of trips at that point, because that was over a decade ago. And so we're to believe that clarence thomas the supreme court justice when two of his colleagues went in front of the uh senate when there was discussion and a referral of his trips to the financial disclosure committee that he wasn't aware of any of that and that's why he didn't do any of the any more disclosures wasn't aware that he was like literally called up and publicly talked about like the new york times wrote about this i mean i get it he doesn't want to read the new york times because it's liberal lies but 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 it never like he never heard about it it's unbelievable 
have more Supreme Court corruption to talk about. Um, it, this is a really important story. The thing that I can't get over is just how much everybody pretends like, oh, the Supreme Court? You mean the honorable gentlemen and gentlewomen over there? The ones who are above the fray and who are incredibly intelligent. They are like our intellectual overlords and they just, they only make the correct decisions based on the law. This is like the mythology that that has been preached to us. This idea the independent judiciary is so important. Um, but no, in reality, they are deeply, deeply political, even though they claim they're not. Um, and they're corrupt. So now we know this. This is in a raw story. Justice Gorsuch failed to report property sale to CEO of law firm with cases before Supreme Court. So why would this matter? Well, for those who don't understand, I think it's pretty intuitive and you can get it right away. But... What do you think is going to happen in these cases? Gorsuch has a massive bias on the side of, you know, wherever the law firm is. He has a bias in favor of their side of any case. So he's probably not going to judge it on the merits. He's probably going to judge it um, based on his political connections and money. This is incredibly devastating. And this is on top of the recent uh, Clarence Thomas Supreme Court scandal, where he's basically... He has a billionaire sugar daddy, and he hears cases all the time where he has a massive conflict of interest and a bias. Another Supreme Court justice failed to disclose his financial relationship with an individual with business before the court. See, if there actually were a code of ethics or these people were not absolute goblins, they would recuse themselves. Well, no, actually, I, I retract that. They wouldn't have taken these gifts anyway. They wouldn't have done it. Neil Gorsuch has been trying to sell a 40-acre property he co-owned in rural Colorado for nearly two years before Brian Duffy, the chief executive of one of the biggest law firms in the country, put it under contract exactly nine days after Gorsuch was confirmed by the Senate in 2017, reported Politico. Wow, would you look at that? What a coincidence that timing was. I'm sure it wasn't pay-to-play corruption. He and his wife closed on the house a month later, paying... $1.825 million, according to a deed in the county's record system, reported political correspondent Heidi Presbella. Gorsuch, who held a 20% stake, reported making between $250,000 and $500,000 from the sale on his federal disclosure forms. Gorsuch did not disclose the identity of the purchaser. The box was left blank. Gee, I wonder why. Couldn't be because he's trying to hide his obvious pay-for-play corruption, is it? The firm, the firm Duffy leads Greenberg... Trorig has been involved in at least 22 cases before or presented to the Supreme Court since buying that 3,000 square foot uh, log home and mountainous land from the justice. Although Duffy says he has never argued a case before Gorsuch or met him socially. Quote, I've never spoken to him. Sure. I've never met him. Sure. By the way, this is how pernicious this stuff is. I just want everybody to understand this. The way it works in our legal system is in order to prove corruption, there has to be what's called a quid pro quo which is basically like, I will now give you the money and you will do X favor for me. Fill in the blank with whatever X is. That's quid pro quo corruption. Now, um, the reason why that standard is absurd is because in most instances, the corruption is implied, right? So if you just buy the house and you just let him get away with a $500,000 profit or whatever it is, you just do that, you don't say anything. It's implied, right? Oh yeah, when the court, when that, case gets in front of the court and I'm on that side, it's implied, hey man, 
I do you a solid, you're going to do me a solid. And also, to, to one extent or another, it's, this is human nature, right? If somebody, it's I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Somebody does a solid for you, you're going to want to do a solid for them back in return. In fact, if that's not the case, you're kind of sociopathic. Now, in most instances in life, I scratch your back, you scratch mine is totally fine. But when it comes to politics and people who are supposed to be above this tit for tat, pay to play corruption type stuff, it's terrible because his job is supposed to be, you know, decide cases based on the Constitution, based on the law, be objective. You are, by definition, no longer objective with this sort of conflict of interest. So, by the way, I don't even believe him when he says I never spoke to him, I've never met him. But even if it were true, that doesn't change the nature of the case at all here. Duffy, a longtime Colorado resident, said he had been looking for a property with access to fly fishing waterways for many years. And he insists he did not know Gorsuch was one of the owners when he made when he made his first offer. I totally do not believe that. Not even a little bit. Quote, the fact that he was going, the fact that he was going to be a Supreme Court justice was absolutely irrelevant to the purchase of that property. Duffy said it's a wonderful piece of property and we're so glad we bought it. Gorsuch has sided with Greenberg, Trorig clients eight times and against them four times in the 12 cases where his opinion is recorded, including a case where he joined the other five conservative justices in agreement with a Greenberg client who challenged a Barack Obama measure to fight climate change by regulating carbon emissions from power plants. Quote, we have seen a steady stream of revelations regarding Supreme Court justices falling short of the ethical standards expected of other federal judges and of public servants, said Senate Judiciary uh, Committee Chairman Dick Durbin. The need for Supreme Court ethics reform is clear, and if the court does not take adequate action, Congress must. The Senate Judiciary Committee will be closely examining these matters in the coming weeks. Okay, so let me point out this for you guys. It was sort of implied here, but just so everybody understands. The way it works with lower federal courts, there is a code of ethical standards that they have to abide by. With the Supreme Court, there's no code of ethical standards. It's astonishing. The higher you get up the ladder, the fewer rules there are. So you have free reign, do whatever you want. And it's the honor system, basically. You know, oh, just trust me. I got this. They need a code of ethics. Absolutely. And I would get rid of the lifetime um, appointments for sure. Now, um, you know, Durbin, Durbin saying these things. Okay, so he's nominally on the right side. But we're going to, I'm going to add to this in just a second here. Um, he's not really doing his job right. You're about to see he's not really doing his job right. Durbin has asked Chief Justice John Roberts to testify next month before his committee on the court's ethics rules following revelations of Justice Clarence Thomas's undisclosed financial relationship with billionaire Republican donor Harlan Crow. Um, so here's what I just referenced. This was in Politico. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin says he didn't invite Justice Clarence Thomas to testify regarding ethics because he thought Thomas would ignore the invitation. So we didn't even try to get Clarence Thomas to testify when he's like the heart of the corruption scandal. Now, by the way, Clarence Thomas has since sent a letter where he was like, yeah, you know, I'm not really feeling it. Um, we have separation of powers, so that means I get to do what I want. No, uh, the whole point of separation of powers is that so we have checks and balances, which is the exact opposite of how you're interpreting it. <laughs> the separation of powers doesn't mean I get to get away with whatever I want, even if it's wrong. Separation of powers is, if I do something wrong, there's another branch of government that will check my ass. But Clarence Thomas just flipped the meaning of that to be like, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. I'm not going to come. to. Yeah, I, this is a nothing matter. So, no, no, no. It is definitely not a nothing matter.
ProPublica will not leave poor Clarence Thomas alone. <laughs> they have got his number. It's like Herschel Walker with Roger Sollenberger over at Daily Beast. Like they, it's like a dog just snap, you know, snapping at somebody, not letting go. ProPublica's Justin Elliott, Joshua Kaplan, Alex Majerski, and Brett Murphy have released a report regarding uh, Clarence Thomas's uh, both public and private signaling to donors within the Republican Party, the Supreme Court itself, and also the Republican Party uh, writ large. Uh, back in the early 2000s, apparently Thomas was signaling all the way back then that, um, I don't know, he wasn't getting paid enough. Uh, back then in, in 2000, he was making $173,000, which is the equivalent, Nick, if you want to feel bad about inflation. That's the equivalent of $300,000 a year at this is that, point. Is that right? That's that's right. Oh, my God. It's pretty. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Here's a quote from the ProPublica article. In early January of 2000, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was at a five star beach resort in Sea Island, Georgia, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt after almost Sorry. a decade. <laughs> After almost a decade on the court, Thomas had grown frustrated with his financial situation. According to friends, he'd recently started raising his young grandnephew, and Thomas's wife was soliciting advice on how to handle the new expenses. The month before, the justice had borrowed two hundred and sixty-seven thousand dollars from a friend to buy a high-end RV. Give it to this guy; he loves his RVs. At the resort, Thomas gave a speech at an off-the-record conservative conference. He found himself seated next to a Republican member of Congress on the flight home. The two men talked, and the lawmaker left the conversation worried that Thomas might resign. Congress should give Supreme Court justices a pay raise, Thomas told him. If lawmakers didn't act, one or more of justices will leave soon, maybe in the next year. Nick, that's right. Clarence Thomas, back in 2000, basically blackmailed the entirety of the Republican Party, the Supreme Court, and every Republican donor to pay off his debt and to corrupt him. He literally begged everyone to corrupt him. And you want to hear something wild, Nick? Yeah. It worked. You know why it worked so well? The timing is important of this, right? What yep. was going on in January of 2000? I can't even imagine at this point. What possibly was cooking up in January of 2000 that would completely change the history of the nation? So I was actually saw um, Al Gore speak at a high school that I was uh, substitute teaching at. Uh, you know, and it was, it was later. It was probably in the summer of that of the 2000. But um, remember, I think what he was preying upon, and this is the why the timing is important, was it looked like Al Gore was going to beat George W. Bush in the in the uh, presidential. Wait, wait, wait. Cor correction, he correction, did. Nick. He. Yeah. He, he did. He did. Beat George. Oh, OK, well, let's get to that, because <laughs> right. it just so happens that Clarence Thomas got to decide who won that, that, that race uh, it, later on in that year. Yep. And so um, this is really why it becomes a little bit more nefarious than a guy who all of a sudden woke up after, let's see, 10 years of being a Supreme Court justice and realized, shit, I don't get paid a whole lot. I thought I got in this to actually make some money. Like, like, what did he think after, you know, when he first got the job and, and committed yeah. his whole lifetime to doing this job uh, that, you know, all of a sudden he's like, oh, I want money. And then that timing is really important because I think he realized he, there was pressure on everybody to maintain that because they thought That's called recognizing leverage is yeah. what it is. And, and, and if he were to resign when Gore was uh, in presidency, then they lose that seat and becomes a lot less uh, conservative. So. This is a manipulation of all manipulations. I, I guess I, I want to give him credit. I didn't think he was that smart, but he that's a pretty smart move. Well, I, I, uh, to, to be fair, I don't, I don't think he dreamed this thing up for himself. I mean, um, 
Jenny Thomas very shortly after this landed a six-figure gig at the Heritage Foundation. I mean, she has done a really good job of understanding exactly what she can do because her husband is a Supreme Court justice. Um, this is... Nick, I, we, we talked about George Santos. We said, you know, probably the, the greatest liar and grifter that we have seen in Congress. The Supreme Court has been a bastion of of grifters <laughs> like it, from the very beginning liars grifters manipulators like i the very the, the very fact that corporations are people and the fact that that was made up from whole cloth by a bunch of people basically who conspired to do it tells you who these people are these are scoundrels in the supreme court and they always have been he clarence thomas is on the mount rushmore of the most scoundrelish Supreme Court justices of all time. It's really incredible how blatant he has been about it, how how big of a role he has played in to the blatant corruption of the modern Supreme Court. You kind of have to take your hat off for him. You really do. And and he, he the he, the veiled threats of like how he how the Constitution needed to be interpreted, and he had the quotes that he would have on this thing. It's like it really it made it sound like he's like we all know how you want me. Oh, here's the other thing. The backstory of this was he never asked a question for 20 years on the bench, which is completely strange. Everybody else asks something. He never would speak yep. up because. A, you could add, you can just assume that he was just uninterested, or yep. B, he was just waiting for the time to put his stamp on the Republican, you know, vote, whatever that's going to be, and the conservative vote, and then move on. I don't think he ever really spent much time thinking about any of these cases, and so um, it just continues to add. We're going to add a little bit more uh, context into what's going on, but it's like I don't even know if it needs the context. The guy is corrupt. He's corrupt. He he should not not even be. He shouldn't even resign in disgrace. He should be let out of the Supreme Court in disgrace. He should have his ass kicked out of the court if there was any justice. Also, for the record, what's that sound, Nick? What? Oh, crickets. It's absolute crickets as the Democrats say nothing about this, as they don't act on this whatsoever, as this hasn't even become a campaign issue. Like, we don't hear anything about this. We don't hear anything about Supreme Court reform. We don't hear anything about adding justices. We don't hear anything about it. And that is a disgrace that they would rather protect the sanctity of our institutions and big scare quotes around sanctity of our institutions than to actually call out some of the most blatant corruption that we will ever see. Professor Clark, put this moment in context for us. For the first time in the court's 234-year history, it's adopting a code of ethics. How big a deal is this? This is not a very big deal. Um, It does show that the Supreme Court can read the room. It knew that it had to do something to address the political and ethics crisis that it finds itself in. But in terms of substance, uh, this new code does very little, and it provides no new mechanisms for holding justices accountable when they violate the rules. Well, let's take through some of that public pressure from the reporting that has been laid out. And I do want to take a moment to, in particular, note the many reports by ProPublica uh, 
breaking news on this front over the last seven months. You're seeing a few of those stories right there. They raised concerns over donor influence, failure to disclose gifts, failure to recuse from certain cases. So, Professor Clark, does any of this, uh, is any of this addressed by the new code? This new new code addresses none of that. It doesn't address donor influence. It doesn't address what will happen when justices fail to disclose gifts. It does address the recusal problem by saying nothing will change. It, it views recusal as a decision for an individual justice. And if a justice fails to recuse, the court won't do anything about it. So you have read through the whole code now. What does it do? And if it doesn't do anything, why do you think all nine justices signed on to it? Uh, I believe that the justices, all presidentially nominated and confirmed by the Senate, are in that sense politicians. And they realize that the court uh, is in some jeopardy, in some political jeopardy, because of the scandals uh, uncovered by ProPublica and other journalists. So they felt pressure to take some sort of action, perhaps to stave off Congress from taking action and imposing uh, an actual uh, ethics code that would provide accountability. So I, I, I think that uh, this should be seen really as a, as a political document, uh, as a way of addressing a political problem that the court had. You mentioned that congressional pressure. One of those who has been calling for Congress to impose and enforce a code of ethics is Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He tweeted some of his concerns, which get to a point you raised earlier about enforceability. He said the question is enforcement. Where do you file a complaint? Who reviews it? How does fact finding occur? Who compares what happened to what's allowed? That is where the rubber hits the road. So, Professor Clark, do I hear you saying none of that is addressed in this code and there is potentially still a role for Congress here? Oh, there's definitely a role for Congress here. And yes, this uh, this code is utterly silent. It's basically a failure to address those really important questions of, uh, you know, who is it that will hold justices accountable and how will they be held accountable? I, and I, if I could just add one thing. Uh, ironically, the court touts the fact that it imposes mandatory ethics training on the court's employees. It does not uh, impose mandatory ethics training on the justices. And that's where the failure has been. Well, here's the question, because we have heard some of the justices publicly say they support a code of ethics. We've recently heard just earlier this fall from Justices Coney Barrett and Elena Kagan. Uh, Here's what they had to say then. I think it would be a good idea um, for us to do it particularly so that we can communicate to the public exactly what it is that we're doing in a clearer way than perhaps we have been able to do so far. It would, uh, you know, help in our own compliance with the rules, and it would, uh, uh, I think, go far in uh, persuading other people that we were um, adhering to the highest standards of conduct. Professor Clark, do you think there was a divide or there is a divide among the justices on how this should be addressed? 
I don't, I'm not privy to the justices' conversations among themselves, but you could hear in both of those quotations a concern with public perception. And that, I think, is the bottom line about this new code. It's a way of addressing public perception rather than addressing the heart of the problem, which is a lack of accountability. So when it comes to public perception, we know the court has suffered a decline in public trust, like a lot of American institutions in recent years. Does this code help at all with that trust and building it back up? I don't believe so. I believe what would actually help matters for the Supreme Court is for it to adopt an accountability mechanism, something like uh, what has been uh, suggested by, I think, Professor Stephen Vladek and others, uh, an inspector general, some kind of a mechanism for investigating allegations of wrongdoing or violations and a, as a way of actually holding justice accountable when they fail to comply with the law. The Supreme Court is off the rails. And it's only going to get worse unless we fight to reform it. Public trust and approval of the court have hit historic lows due to seemingly partisan decisions and a growing number of ethics scandals. Here are three key reforms Congress should enact to restore legitimacy to our nation's highest court. Number one, establish a code of ethics. Every other federal judge has to sign on to a code of ethics, except for Supreme Court justices. This makes no sense. Judges on the highest court should be held to the highest ethical standards. Congress should impose a code of ethics on Supreme Court justices. At the very least, any ethical code should ban justices from receiving personal gifts from political donors and anyone with business before the court. Clarify when justices with conflicts of interest should remove themselves from cases, prohibit justices from trading individual stocks, and establish a formal process for investigating misconduct. Number two, enact term limits. Article 3 of the Constitution says judges may hold their office during good behavior, but it does not explicitly give Supreme Court justices lifetime tenure on the highest court, even though that's become the norm. Term limits would prevent unelected justices from accumulating too much power over the course of their tenure and would help diffuse what has become an increasingly divisive confirmation process. Congress should limit Supreme Court terms to 18 years, after which justices move to lower courts. Number three, expand the court. The Constitution does not limit the Supreme Court to nine justices. In fact, Congress has changed the size of the court seven times. It should do so again in order to remedy the extreme imbalance of today's Supreme Court. Now, some may decry this as radical court packing. That's pure rubbish. The real court packing occurred when Senate Republicans refused to even consider a Democratic nominee to the Supreme Court on the fake pretext that it was too close to the 2016 election, but then confirmed a Republican nominee just days before the 2020 election. Rather than allow Republicans to continue exploiting the system, 
expanding the Supreme Court would actually unpack the court. This isn't radical. It's essential. Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Making these reforms happen won't be easy. We're up against big, moneyed interests who will fight to keep their control of the nation's most important court. But these key reforms have significant support from the American people who have lost trust in the court. The Supreme Court has no real power to enforce its judgments. It has no army. It has no control over spending. Its power comes from only one source, the trust of the people. With neither the sword nor the purse, trust is all it has. We've just heard clips today, starting with Ralph Nader laying out the case for resignations and reform on the Supreme Court. Legal Eagle got into more of the details of Clarence Thomas's relationship with Harlan Crow. The Majority Report discussed why it would be impossible for Thomas to not have known about the ethical problems and reporting requirements he's been flouting. The Kyle Kalinske Show discussed Neil Gorsuch's questionable property sale. The Muckrake Political Podcast pointed to the long history of Clarence Thomas using his leverage on the court to get money from wealthy Republican benefactors. The PBS NewsHour reported on the new ethics code written by and for the Supreme Court that will do nothing to change any behavior. And finally, Robert Reich laid out his proposals for needed reforms. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from All In with Chris Hayes, discussing some of the inner workings of the court leading up to the overturning of Roe vs. Wade. Justice Barrett is in a fascinating position. She gets appointed. She is a favorite of abortion opponents. That is the way she's read in the public mind. So I think actually the fact that she voted against taking the case gives us to, a lot to think about in terms of the court and also about her. What is the meaning um, of, of her switching her vote? And Now and Then discussed the differences between how court scandal was handled in a bipartisan way back in the 60s compared to how it's basically ignored today. If our body politic were as healthy today as it was in 1969, leaders of both parties would be demanding Justice Thomas's resignation, and he would be as worried about being impeached by a Republican House as Fortas was by a Democratic one. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support. Or shoot me an email, request any financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Now to wrap up, I just wanted to share one more detail about what the court released to end this year, marked primarily by the exposure of vast corruption within the institution. In addition to the toothless ethics rules intended to give the impression of ethical standards on the court rather than to create real standards, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, wrote his annual report completely ignoring the topic of ethics. I think the Daily Beast subheadline said it best, The Supreme Court in 2023 faced ethics scandals and a serious loss of public trust. Naturally, the Chief Justice's response is a silly, childish book report on AI. Continuing from the article, quote, 
He spends the first five pages giving a grade school-like report of how the court has evolved from using quill pens to typewriters and now computers. When Roberts does get around to discussing AI for barely two pages, his insights are so bland that Above the Law said about it, quote, If AI had a sense of shame, ChatGPT would be embarrassed by this level of superficiality, end quote. Now look, granted, AI was also big news this year. I get why he might want to address its potential impact on jurisprudence, but one might also hope that someone in that position would have the self-awareness to realize when they're just not up to the task. Continuing from the article with this important point, quote, he ducks any real discussion of the true legal ethics issues that AI implicates, such as how the use of it may affect client confidentiality and what kind of disclosure duties do lawyers have to their clients when they use AI, end quote. This article and others on the subject make one last point as well, but first, a quick history lesson. Uh, this is as good a time as any to point out that Roberts was appointed to the court by George W. Bush after having spearheaded Bush's chaotic legal strategy during the 2000 election recount that culminated in the so-called Brooks Brothers riot in which expensively suited Republican lawyers literally banged on windows and doors trying to stop the recount in line with their legal strategy that the only way to assure a fair election was to not count the votes. Now, I don't think Roberts was actually at that riot, but he was the leader of that team of maniacs and was rewarded with the appointment as chief justice. Secondly, his most famous catchphrase from his hearings was that judges are just umpires. They're just there to call balls and strikes, not make actual, you know, judgments which is why we should all be assured that his ideology wouldn't color any of his decisions. This was an argument that the left knew was bullshit at the time and said as much, but it was good enough cover for his extreme pro-corporate, anti-voting rights, anti-civil rights stances that he was confirmed without much controversy. Well, it turns out that now that he's faced with the idea of actually mindless AI being integrated into the legal process, he no longer thinks that judges should be compared to relatively mindless umpires simply calling balls and strikes. Back from the article, quote, he searches for ways to show off his understanding of the limitations of AI. He says that in professional tennis, line judges have been replaced by optical technology to call balls in or out, which he asserts is inapplicable to judging. That's because, quote, Legal determinations often involve gray areas that still require application of human judgment. End of Robert's quote. So much for the umpire analogy. End of article quote. Now, of course, it's nice to know how we got here and occasionally point out some hypocrisy that exposes what a powerful person like Roberts probably always knew was lies. But ultimately, that all pales in comparison to the damage that's been done by the court's rulings over the past 20 years. And it's not even just about the rulings they've made or some of the corrupt ways that justices have gotten their seats of power. The most important thing to understand is that we've created a system that effectively has no mechanism to check that power or corruption. The expectation was always that there would be enough honorable people filling the halls of power that the Supreme Court didn't need any mechanism for oversight beyond the threat of impeachment. But in a time of hyperpartisanship, the stakes, the political stakes, 
are perceived as being too high to act honorably. They see it as war, not governance. So the rules of war and raw power apply, not the behaviors that would produce good governance. And so accountability for corruption that would have been called for as obvious to practically all just a couple of generations ago is now seen as essentially outside the realm of possibility. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Now, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Ben for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships. You can join them today by signing up at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. You'll find that link in the show notes, along with a link to join our Discord community where you can continue the discussion. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com